0: It's a rather simplified suggestion of a complex mental process. But you get- Hello. Welcome. I'm Pastor Scott. Welcome to Desert Breeze. We're continuing our emotion series, getting a hold of our heart and our mind. And uh, we're in our third week. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43, and we're going to be talking about sadness and depression. And we're going to call it good grief because grief is good if we plan for it. It always cracks me up that uh, intro, he says, emotions are largely involuntary. And the guy says, I can't believe that. (laughs) We're going to talk about that a little bit. So, when we were brainstorming what to call this series, we uh, originally thought maybe we'd call it first responders. Why is that? Well, it's because sometimes when things happen, either good or bad in our lives, our first response is an emotional one. And so, I challenged you guys last week. Did anybody take the emotional intelligence test? Did you have some fun with that? Yeah? Any marital counseling needed out there? (laughs) Yeah. So why did I challenge you with that? Well, it's because we need to be students of ourselves. We need to learn regularly how we respond, and we need to ask ourselves, how am I doing? How am I responding to life stuff in an emotional way? And it's important because when something alters our lives in a significant way... What we count on, what we look to for our hope, it's really going to surface. And what we count on and, and look for firm footing on it, it, needs to work. It needs to work, and it needs to sustain us. And whatever it is, it has to sustain us not just in the moment, but really in an eternal way. And, uh, and uh, so if we're not taught, if, we're, if that truths, those truths that can sustain us aren't placed in our hearts in a significant way, can we really trust our emotions as first responders? I want you to talk to the person next to you and answer this question. Do you think our emotions are voluntary or involuntary? Go ahead, ask the person or talk to the person next to you. What'd you come up with? The answer is yes. They're both voluntary and involuntary. We can control most of our involuntary or most of our uh, kind of innate um, human functions like breathing, right? We don't have to put a slide up here that, to remind you to breathe tonight. You're going to do just fine, I hope. We don't need to set our alarm clock to wake us up to remind us to breathe. It's involuntary at some, in some points. But when we're awake, we can hold our breath, right? Right? It's a voluntary thing. We can control it. But at some point, you're going to need to breathe or it's not going to go very well. <laughs> there are other human functions that we have that we do the same thing, like arguing, right? It's not a human function, but we do argue. So you're, rah, 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 rah. you're arguing with someone, and then the phone rings. Hello? <laughs> yes, I'm having a wonderful day. So we can control that. But some, we cannot live unemotional, emotionless, right? At some point, we're going to have to emote or breathe emotionally. And if we don't, there's going to be a negative emotional effect to that. And sometimes that turns out to be sadness and depression. So some clarity here. Some depression is physiological or neurological in nature. And I'm not a doctor, so I'm not even going to go there. Um, we're going to be talking about mostly the basics of emotional and spiritual depression tonight. But there are biological complexities to that. So later we're going to have a little biology test. There won't be a quiz. Just take good notes. So some more clarity. Sadness and depression are forms of suffering. And suffering is going to be a huge theme of our teaching tonight. So as it relates to suffering in this Quick fix, I want it now, avoid the problem, numb your brain. Society that we live in, not being taught how to suffer is really not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem in this world is that we're taught to suffer wrong. Because many of the world's solutions, many of the worldly solutions are very temporal. They're in the moment. They're very superficial. And they're intended to make us happy, but they're not sustaining. They won't give us life They may even take life from us, but they won't give us life like the way God does. And so we need to understand that we need to be equipped to suffer the way God tells us to suffer, not the way the world tells us. And so sadness and depression can mean that we lack the depth of our biblical truths. So we need to get the gospel down deep in our hearts. We may be even lacking in learning and the skills that we need to suffer. We're not usually taught how to suffer And we may even lack the faith perspective that we need to suffer well. We only need the faith the size of our mustard seed, but if we don't have the right perspective, we might not know how to suffer well. Christians are not immune from sadness and depression. Theological giants like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon, they suffered greatly with with severe depression. Spurgeon even called called it the sickness of the soul. And so what I want us to learn today is that the battle with sadness and depression has both physical and spiritual roots. And I want us to learn how God gives us what we need to fight that battle because it is a fight. And I want us to learn to suffer suffer well. God, help us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this community of family and friends and this place and this time that we get to worship You and hear from you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence and your power and your promises. God, we lack in wisdom and even sometimes the desire to confront subjects like sadness and depression and suffering. And so we ask you for wisdom. And your word says that when we ask, you will give it to us generously without reproach. So, God, we pray that you speak to our hearts and our minds tonight. And, God, I pray a special prayer for those that are, that are suffering with sadness and depression in a, in a real immediate way. God, I pray that you would give them healing and assurance and remembrance and peace that would bring them out of that darkness and into the light of your glorious grace. God, we need you to help us all to prepare us well for any suffering and sadness that is to come by blessing us with your presence and your strength and your redeeming power and truth. And dwell us with your spirit and fortify us with your love and grace. God, I pray that you would quench any distraction in us and around us that would keep us from hearing you. We come humbly before you as our Lord. And we come desperately to you as our Savior. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So our example of uh, how to fight this fight, it's uh, going to be found in Psalms 42 and 43. Some say that that is, was written as originally one psalm, but it's split up in the Bible as two. We're going to use them both, but it's sort of an unfinished case study. What do I mean by that? It's unfinished because there's really no clear description of an end to the psalmist's trauma. That's depressing. And 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 check it out. I wasn't looking for this, but I came across the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme this weekend or this week, and you know it, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men finish it. Couldn't. put... What kind of nurse sick nursery rhyme is that? <laughs> Poor Humpty. But what if not having all the answers to our external problems were actually part of learning and knowing how to suffer well? We're going to get there, so let's get started. Your first fill in the blank. The experiences that shape us throughout our life story will heavily influence the perspective we take into seasons of suffering. If we hope to suffer well, it is necessary to purify And guard our hearts as life goes on. What do I mean by purify? I mean purify because sometimes we're learned to suffer poorly in the wrong ways. We're learned to handle our hardships in an unhealthy way. So we need to purify those thoughts and those ways from us and then guard our hearts as life goes on so that we won't go back to those things that we were taught uh, maybe at a young age so that we would learn how to suffer better and how to suffer, suffer well. So it requires a a battle plan. We have to have a good battle plan. It's very necessary. And a plan is something that you create before the event, and part of that planning is looking back and asking, what has influenced me from the past that has shaped my thinking and my feeling and my acting? How will that affect my suffering now and in the future when I come into new seasons of suffering? Would you agree that we're all broken? Yes, we're all broken in many ways. We're we're sinners, right? So in that way, we're broken. But also, we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. And sometimes, and by the way, the brain stores trauma. Because of the effects of sin around us, we get broken relationally in all kinds of different ways In other ways. And so brokenness points to a past tense event that lead to a current condition. And it's a healthy and strong thing to get help and healing from past hurts. It's not a weakness. So it's important. And it's a good thing and a responsible thing and a noble thing to get counseling, to get therapy. But you don't have to, you know, always ramp up the insurance. You can go and and have an intimate friend who who you can share your life with, share your woes and your burdens to help process your suffering and your feelings. That happens in life groups here at Desert Breeze. We really, really encourage people to be in life groups because we're allowed to share our burdens with one another, to live life together. Life change happens best in small groups. And in those relationships, you need to ask yourself, what do I need to look at right now that is or may affect on, have an effect on my emotional well-being or ability to suffer well? And not only that, what do I need to do moving forward to ensure that my heart and mind is in Christ so that I suffer well? Those are great questions. We all have a story. What's your story? Your story is worth hearing. You are the only one that should be able to tell your story, and people need to hear it so that they know you. Our greatest need is to be known, but sometimes we're afraid to tell our story. But that's part of the healing process. And it's important. So as we look at our our scripture here today, there's a story. These are actually real people. And so we need to attach the story to the psalms. And in the context, it doesn't really say who the author of these psalms were, but it does say at the heading of 42, the choir ma- to the choir master, a skill of the sons of Korah. So who were the sons of Korah? Well, those were among the Levites who were in charge of temple worship, and specifically, as we'll see in this psalm, uh, in charge of singing. They were like Josh Tanner and Phil. They were in charge of the singing. And so um, if we look at that, one of the resources I found uh, said that this particular song was written around the time that King David was running from Absalom, his son, who was trying to kill him, and it was pretty common, I think, for uh, all the king's horses and all the king's men to go with the king wherever he might have gone, so it makes sense that the psalmist may have been amongst David's people, and they were on the run. But these were sons of Korah, right? So who's Korah? Well, Korah was a king who challenged the rights of Moses and Aaron to the priesthood, and Moses wasn't having it. So he called him out in front of everybody saying that if Korah and his men die of natural causes, then Aaron and I were not sent by God. But if we were sent by God, the ground is going to open up and it's going to swallow all of Korah's Uh, Korah and all his men and all their belongings, and guess what happened? The ground opened up. They were gone. But the sons of Korah, as evidenced by this psalm, were spared. And so how would you like to have that family history? What kind of emotional stuff would happen in your life if that happened to one of your relatives? I don't know if it was his dad or just the uncle that he doesn't like to invite to Thanksgiving, but it happened in his family now, also, because of this, the psalms are written in the first person, it appears that the psalmist is at least feeling alone, feeling very lonely. He could have been in a rocky crag or in a cave by himself, but he was definitely feeling lonely, and that's a sign of depression. And so he's on the run and definitely suffering. And so given his family history and the business trip he seems to be on, and what we'll see uh, that his current circumstances are, it's not surprising that he is struggling physically and emotionally. Does anybody know what a masculine is? Well, there's lots of resources out there. They all kind of say the same. They're not totally in agreement. Well, one of the things they definitely agree on is that psalms are poems or songs of instruction. And we know that instruction is for learning, and we know that as disciples, if we call ourselves disciples, we ought to be learning all the time. And learning is in, pre- in, in preparation for practice. And so the best time to learn to suffer well is before you suffer, and I hope you get that today. And although the psalmist is obviously suffering and depressed here, if we look really close, he appears to know where to run to, and he is fighting this internal battle that he's having on. He's fighting it very well. So let's read read God's word. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. Very descriptive and very emotional beginning. A deer does not pant unless two things are true. it's He's in a parched land where there's not much water or if he's running from a predator or both, right? And so we see maybe that he's on the run and maybe he's in a parched land. So very emotional, descriptive uh, account of his, how he's feeling. It says, My soul thirsts for you, O oh God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's not just talking about an idea of God. He says the living God. He's had a a living experience with this God that he's crying out to. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So I don't know if he had food. He could have had food. But he's definitely tasting his tears that he's crying all day long. And his tears are attached to this internal feeling that he doesn't feel like God is present. Where is God? When am I gonna appear before him? He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So this is an account of what he's experienced before he may be lamenting that he's not there, but he's certainly accounting. He's, he's recalling it. He said, "How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festivals. See? He's in charge of singing. He's been in God's holy house and he's leading worship. And he goes back inside of himself, "Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul, why are you in term- at turmoil within me?" Then he gives himself some instruction. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. This is, again points to his personal experience because the term my salvation actually means the face of my salvation. He's obviously had some experiences face-to-face with God as he's done his worship. My soul is cast down within me. So he's not only kind of questioning his soul, he's like, this is what's going on. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and and Mount Mizar. These are places that he might have been on the way to, on the run, but they're certainly not on the temple mount in the the house of God. So he's saying, even though I'm out here, I'm not where I want to be. I am going to remember you from these lands. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This is really interesting because he is definitely in touch with his suffering, his circumstances, but he's saying, your waterfalls and your breakers and your waves, he's talking about God. He's recognizing that God is sovereign even in the midst of his suffering and he he remembers that by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, maybe he's having some relief. Maybe his attacker stopped attacking him that at night there seems to be some peace and he doesn't spend it sleeping. He spends it praying a prayer and singing a song to the God of his life. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So he's not discounting God. He's saying, God, I know all these things about you, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like you've forgotten me. It feels like the oppressors, my enemies, are greater than you are. And this is how it feels. As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So not only on the inside, he's feeling like his tears are saying, where is your God? And he's got his own doubt, but his enemies are hammering him going, yeah, where is your God? So it's consistent on the inside and the outside. Very hard, very much of a struggle. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. So he's crying out to God. He's saying, come on, God. I know you're there. For you are the God whom I take refuge Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? And notice now he doesn't ask God to change his circumstances. He asks him to change his heart. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. It's kind of an internal cry that God... Help me to experience what I've experienced before. Then I will go to the altar of God, to the God of my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O oh God, my God. Why are you downcast, cast down, Oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Super emotional, super descriptive. This is God's word. So depression. There are over 350 million people on the planet who battle with depression. In the United States, it's about 7% of our population. It's called the common cold of mental illness. Now, I'm I'm not going to try and diagnose you if you think you're suffering with depression. Get some help. Get some professional help. Because a logical understanding of depression and how to treat it takes years of schooling, and most of us won't get that, but part of what will help us is to have a little biological understanding about what's going on physically inside of us, and this understanding will help equip us to not only deal with our own sadness and depression, but it'll help us not to be so awkward when we're genuinely trying to help others. So we're going to have a short biology lesson, but before the biology, here's here's a distinction between sadness and depression. Sadness is an an emotion or emotional state. Depression is a condition that, among many other things, includes the symptom of sadness. Just like a runny nose isn't the flu, If you have a runny nose, you may have the flu because it's a symptom of the flu, and there are other common symptoms for the flu just like there are other common symptoms of depression. They're common. Edward T. Welsh wrote a book called Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. He speaks of this commonness. He says, Those who feel overwhelmed by depression share in a fundamental humanness. Expect to find ordinary humanness just below the surface in the form of fear, anger, guilt, shame, jealousy, wants, despair over loss, physical weaknesses, and other problems that are present in every person. Depression is not always caused by these things, but it is always an occasion to consider them. So what this tells me is that sadness and depression is not some exotic uh, disease. A lot of the times, even Christians think because that we're supposed to count it all joy, the depression and, and, and some of the symptoms are unbiblical, but that's not always true. Like every other emotion, sadness is not necessarily bad. It depends on what we do with our sadness, and it doesn't always mean that there's something wrong with you. There's not something wrong with us if we're sad or depressed. We just need to address it. Ezekiel, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 and 3 said, says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For this is the end of every man and the living will take it to heart. He's talking about death. He's talking about losing someone that you love and he says it's better to be in a house of mourning than to be in a house of feasting than to go forget about it and party and drown your sorrows. It's better to be in a house of mourning because it's the end of every single one of us. We're all gonna die and we ought to take that seriously when we're alive. Why? Because we know that it's going to hurt. And we need to address that. How are we going to suffer through that? How are we going to help others to suffer through those things? So this means there are legitimate reasons to be sad and to take it seriously. And it goes on to say, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So the Bible actually encourages us to be sad and to grieve in an appropriate way so that we could get to that, that glad face. It's like getting toxins out. And we need to know and learn how to do that. We need to work out our sorrows. It's not a bad thing to be sad, but we can do bad things with our sadness. Emotions are like fruit. And if you want to understand the fruit, you have to look at the root. And so our next fill-in-the-blank says, the symptomatic root of sadness and depression are both physical and spiritual. Our whole person is fed by our physical and spiritual root system. So let's talk about the root system a little bit. There's symptoms of physical and spiritual roots. First, physical roots. There are several physical imbalances that can negatively affect the environment, the enjoyment of our wholeness. We all want to feel good, right? Be physically whole, but there's emotional red flags that can show themselves in the form of physical. Abnormality. so here we go with the biology lesson you guys ready okay keep track with me there's a chemical called serotonin serotonin is sometimes called the happy chemical It's a chemical in your blood known as a neurotransmitter that is key to mood regulation and among other physical functions it also affects pain perception gastrointestinal function our perception of hunger and when enough is enough it tells us when we're full And when serotonin decreases, emotions grow darker and memories diminish. This is because the part of the brain called the hippocampus, keep up with me, the hippocampus shrinks. And the hippocampus is thought to be the center of emotions and memory and the autotomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is the part of the nervous system responsible for control of bodily functions not consciously directed, such as breathing, the heartbeat, the digestive process. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? So can you see how having depression can physically diminish with red, with red flag ailments like out of control emotions, numbness, upset stomach, appetite swings, forgetfulness, tiredness, an irregular heartbeat, panic attacks with hyperventilating? Can you see how that can happen and how it can be a signs of depression? So why all the, the biological information? Well, there's two reasons. First is sometimes we minimize Uh, uh, minor ailments for way too long if you are uh, have headaches all the time or stomach aches all the time instead of eating tums and tylenol all day or giving yourself the happy hour treatment go to see a doctor a professional to find out what the root of the problem is it could be many many things but it could be depression. I'm sure you've heard that there are many ailments uh, that people are high-functioning. There's even addictions that people are, are, they function in a high way. There's also something called highly functional depression. And so you can function on a day-to-day basis, but the depression is alive underneath the surface, and it's doing damage on the inside, And so the second reason we also need to know how our physical warning signs may point to spiritual things is because we need to be aware that our physical nature is attached to our spiritual nature. And like Spurgeon pointed out, it may be sickness of the soul. So let's look at the spiritual roots. There's two spiritual roots of depression, and they are hopelessness and forgetfulness. Hopelessness and forgetfulness. So if we look at our scripture, what are some of the external circumstances that are shaping the psalmist's uh, internal perspectives? We read it. I'm not in the house of God. I'm not where I want to be. I don't feel the presence of God. I'm not with my community worshiping, doing what I was called to do. There's no uh, procession of worship or there's there's a procession of my enemies. It says, no festival. My stomach is in knots because my tears have been my food day and night. My body aches and taunts at me and it feels like wounds in my bones. Do you see how his external perspective is, is shaping his internal perspective? Sometimes circumstances feel hopeless. But can you see how physical wholeness can get jacked up and make our spiritual wholeness even more jacked up? It makes our It makes darker thoughts, dark thoughts darker, a heavy heart heavier, concerns morph into fear and anxiety, and the emotions go bad, and the fight is on. So we have to have a plan. And the plan must not be fighting and kicking against the darkness. The plan must be to fight towards the light. Because the psalmist, he's not hopeless. He's just battling back and forth. He seems manic, but he's he's really just fighting to hang on to the light and the truth that he already has. He's fighting towards the reality that God is faithful. God is loving. God is present. He is in control. It's a fight. When hopelessness is pressing in, we need to remember that hope is alive because Christ is alive. Jesus tells us in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some of you are struggling, I know. Some of you are fighting the darkness right now. You are feeling the waterfalls. You're feeling like you're being hammered by the waves one after another after another, and it seems hopeless. Things appear hopeless, and they fail. Feel hopeless, but they're not. They're not. I'll say with all the love and respect and gentleness, I can if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they very well may be hopeless for you. But Christ is waiting. He's calling out to you. Maybe even right now, he wants to love on you. He wants to, to just embrace you and be that light of your life to you. So turn to Christ. Fight towards the light. And it's more of a battle in here than it is out there. It's a battle with our mind and our heart. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. There's nothing in this world that's going to help us with eternal spiritual things. We need to have a perspective. It says, On the contrary, they have, this is our weapons that we fight, fight with, in Christ they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Do you have a stronghold in your life? A stronghold thought you just can't get past? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's God's word. That's what he has for us. The second symptomatic spiritual root is forgetfulness. And I'm not suggesting that the psalmist or you has forgotten God. It's obviously that he hasn't. He is fighting to grasp the truth of his remembering. Now, this is a, this is a wide thought. And if I didn't say, just wait till I explain, it might be offensive to you. So hang on to this. this this idea of forgetfulness that I'm going to give to you. Forgetfulness is the intellectual struggle of being absent-minded, inattentive, and unmindful. Don't be offended. Let me explain. An intellectual struggle with absent-mindedness. Absent-mindedness. Split up the word absent. It means you're checked out. You're absent of your thinking. You're not thinking right. The emotional part of your brain is hijacked. You're thinking part of your brain, and you're just in this emotional cycle over and over and over again. It's an emotional intellectual struggle. It's also an intellectual struggle with being inattentive. Like I said, he seems to be manic in his circumstances. And he's, but what's going on is his circumstances are taking his attention away from his spiritual realities. It feels impossible to hold on to to a thought, to hold it captive, so the answer isn't to fight against what's outside. The answer is to fight against what's inside, so you become a captive or captivated by Christ. It's also an intellectual struggle of being unmindful. Our minds are always full of something, so what is your mind full of? To be unmindful is to be not intentionally mindful about spiritual truths in the battle when you're suffering. So it's not time to fill up your tank right when you're suffering. It's time to fill up your tank right now, every single day, so that you can in turn, when those seasons come, to suffer well. The forgetful is not the loss of information. It is the fight to be mindful during depressing times of suffering. We see it, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. He already knows it. Hope in God. I shall again praise him. My salvation to my God. In 43, he says, vindicate me, defend me, my cause, deliver me for you are the God whom I take refuge. The answer to the depressive decrease in us is the increase of remembering Christ in us. Paul suffered a lot. In Ephesians, he calls himself the prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. He was, captive. He was a captive of Christ. He was captivated by Christ. And it's really interesting because he was the one suffering in prison, yet he's writing a letter to those outside of suffering prison who were suffering because he was suffering. Yet he was suffering well, encouraging those outside to do the same thing. And he gave them this prayer of spiritual strength. Check this out. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He was saying, I'm going to show you how to suffer well. This is what was in his heart. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's how to suffer. Fight towards the light with truth like that and keep fighting, keep fighting. So here's some practical advice. Number three, Battling to regenerate our spiritual root system involves fighting against the things that cause our spirit to degenerate and giving ourselves to things that help us to spiritually regenerate. Thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) But is that part of your plan? Do you do that? What are you giving yourself to? In seasons of suffering and out. Are you giving yourself to healthy people or unhealthy people? Are you giving yourself to the community of Christ or are you just keeping that in as a distance? Are you getting close to God or are you keeping God as a distance until you really just need him? We'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Don't do that, the bridge might be gone. Are you isolating yourself? Isolation is bad, solitude is good getting alone with God. Sometimes we need to, we, do you guys have a repertoire of worship music that just fills up your tank and, and when, when, you, when you need it, you just listen to it? Or you listen to it all the time, but especially when you really need it, when you're suffering, when you're having a hard time, that it just fills up your tank and it just gives you the truths that you need and reminds you how much Christ loves you and how he'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you do that? Do you have those intimate times? When you come in here, do you take seriously the words that we, that we sing during worship time or does this church start after the third time, after the third song when you get your cup of coffee? Don't waste that time. Church starts when church starts. It starts with worship. It's to fill us up. It's to equip us. And then there's prayer. Do you get alone with God? Do you share your heart with him? Even if you don't know what to say, you can have a big snotty cry and cry out to God with moaning and tears and the Spirit will intercede for you and tell God is share your heart with Him. He knows what you want. Do you allow others to pray for you? Do, you? do you get vulnerable enough to go, man, I'm really struggling, having a hard time. Do you allow them to pray for you? That's, that's what the Bible tells us to do, to bear one another's burdens. But whatever it is, do we do things to produce increase or are you allowing things to happen that produce decrease? Are you feeding yourself with things that renew your mind or are you feeding yourself and spending your time with things that numb your mind? By the way, let's not forget, if you're emotionally depleted, maybe you just need some sleep. Go to bed. Don't sit up worrying. You might need some help for that. But don't do it the wrong way. But also, if you can't get out of bed, maybe you need to get out of bed and walk around, get on the treadmill, walk around the block, do whatever. Maybe you just haven't been eating. Maybe you need some nutrition, and that's really what's making things worse. Get something to eat. Get some good nutrition in your body. But don't overeat, too. A meat lover's pizza and a half a gallon of ice cream, it might make you feel good for a time, but it's going to make you feel miserably tomorrow. I guarantee it. The point is that physical lack exasperates emotional burden, and so does overdoing it. And you you need balance, and sometimes you need other people to help you find that balance. So those kinds of relationships are super important. When you have fallen apart, you need brothers and sisters to help put Humpty Dumpty back together again, okay? So now we're going to go on to the good grief battle plan. Here's the battle plan. Now, I want you to understand that there's three things. Be teachable, embrace reality, practice good grief. These are not three easy steps. There's something that you have to think about and build upon. You have to learn and practice. And you have to understand also that there's appropriate times to take some of these steps. And if there's appropriate times to take some of these steps, there's appropriate times for those that you're alongside of trying to help that you don't try and tell these things to them to do these things like Job's Miserable Comforters did. And I'll talk about that. So first, be teachable. And I'm not saying just get some head knowledge. I'm saying be teachable that you absorb the information, that you think about it, that you make a plan in your heart, and then you learn how to act upon it. And part of that is learn the process of grief and never try to fight alone. There's a process to grief. We all go through the same process. We don't go through it the same way. We don't go through it in the same order. But there's shock, there's denial, there's anger, there's bargaining, there's guilt, there's loneliness, there's sadness, and there's also acceptance. Don't try and do that alone, but also learn the process and, and be a student of yourself to learn to think about how you think you might navigate these things. Be in that house of mourning to learn uh, how you might grieve before you grieve and know that you need healthy, other, other healthy people alongside of you to, do this, to help you through that process. But also there may be occasions that you have people that are grieving alongside of you that are grieving too and you don't ha- want to have competing grief so to understand the process will really, really help you. It'll help you to uh, move away uh, from things that deplete you and and find your firm footing, not only internally but externally. Don't don't give yourself to people or put yourself in places uh, that that uh, get you off of firm ground. Learn how to suffer well, inside and outside, and move off of unstable ground and towards the rock of your salvation. Next under uh, being teachable is don't allow your circumstances to rewrite the truth about the living God, your salvation. The psalm, the psalmist had some unstable moments, didn't he? Didn't it appear that way? That's what we usually see first when we read this. <clears throat> but one place he landed was, verse 8, the Lord commands his steadfast love, at night his song is with. He knows that he's remembering that he's not allowing his circumstances to rewrite the truth about god next is fight to remember what you already know about god and learn it again he says over and over again i will again praise him i will again praise him i will again praise him it's a fight so fight to remember Next is allow God, this is really hard, by the way, allow God to wean you off of comfort, safety, knowing the future, worldly abundance, and human dependence. How many of you have a really easy time with that? Not on my best day, I don't have a hard, easy time with that. Allow God to wean you off of those things. Now, I'm not saying God won't comfort you, I'm saying that God needs to do what he's going to do in, in you in his way, in his timing. 2 Corinthians also says that uh, our afflictions create this, this uh, eternal weight of glory in us, but we need to allow God to do that in us. So you need to trust and fight, and trust and fight. That's what it means to be Teachable. Next, embrace reality. So we need to embrace the reality of our external circumstances, embrace the reality of how it looks in us on the outside, our countenance, but also how it's affecting us on the inside, and also embrace the reality that this is a fight. The fight is on. You have no choice. This is probably one of my favorite parts of this teaching right here, this next point. Be willing to allow your feelings to speak even if your beliefs are contrary to them. Let me say it again. Be willing to allow your feelings to speak even if your beliefs are contrary to them. This gives you permission to be emotional. Sometimes we were taught otherwise. If you're not taught that your feelings are okay... You just need to process them. You're going to stuff your feelings or do something wrong with them. Your words in the midst of suffering may not accurately fl- reflect the truth, but they reflect your real feelings about how you really feel about the truth of what is going on. So be honest with your feelings, but also be honest about the truth and fight to reconcile the two. We talked about Job. Man, he lost his family, his, all his riches, his health. His wife told him to curse God and die. He had these miserable comforters that were around him. And he got sick and tired of it. In, in verse uh, chapter 6, he talks about these words of the wind. They're these feelings, these emotional feelings and phrases that we use that don't necessarily match up with the truth. But he says to his miserable comforts, would you be so kind as to listen to me and look at my face? I've lost everything. I'm sitting here in the ground in the dirt, scraping sores off my body with a broken piece of pottery. My righteousness stands. I'm just being honest about how I feel. So I'm giving you permission. God gives us permission to do this. And if you care about other people, don't be a miserable comfortable uh, comforter and be theologically picky when some is, someone is bleeding all over the place emotionally. Don't do that. Next is we have to identify what your soul pants for. This is one of those not the first step. We have to look at what our soul is panting for. So we actually have to look on the inside, be a student of ourselves, and we have to figure, is that something that's reconcilable or is that something that's irreconcilable? If it has to do with like a lost or broken relationship, if there's something that you can do to maybe try and help restore that relationship, understand that there might be a chance of reconciliation, but it also has to do with that other person. If that other person is not willing to reconcile, is your soul panting for really what's reconcilable? When we lose a loved one, if our soul pants to have that person back, you'll see them in eternity, but here on earth, it's probably not gonna happen. So identify what your soul is panting for and and work through that. Have others around you to help you work through that too. Next is be brave enough to ask why. To ask why. Sometimes we avoid that question. And again, this is not one of those first steps we need to embrace the truth of reality whether it is comforting or not. So in the way of what I was talking about, a broken relationship, if you had something to do with it, if you if you screwed up, you need to embrace that reality and own it and do the right thing with it. Also, sometimes we'll lose people that have hurt themselves or lived in a destructive way that had ended their life. That is such a hard thing to deal with, but at some point you're going to have to embrace that reality. It's really hard to do, but the gospel can heal your heart in those things. Sometimes we need to grieve the truth. And if there's no answer to your why question, you also have to fight to be okay with that. Because usually after you answer a why question, there's always the next question, why? Right? So you need to do that. Be brave enough to ask the why question. Here's the next step, practice good grief. And it's under, the understanding process is one thing to learn, but this is beyond learning to understanding by experience. So you need to practice comforting others, practice sowing and reaping, practice biblical perspectives through discipleship. If we don't practice and get ready for suffering, we're not gonna suffer well. It's not, again, like I said, it's not a we'll cross that bridge when I come to it. We need to come alongside of each other. But you also need to practice sowing and reaping. If you don't do that, when you you go to to reap, there's not going to be anything there to reap because you've you've sown nothing. Part of this is affirm God's sovereignty and his unfailing love for you. Affirm God's sovereignty and his unfailing love for you. Despite our suffering, what does it say in verse 7 and 8? Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. But by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. God controls all the waterfalls and all the waves and the breakers. He's not gonna give you more than you can handle. In fact, he just might. But he's gonna be there to handle it with you. He's not gonna leave you alone. Next is we need to guide Uh, You need to guide your perspective by the renewing of your mind. I'm talking specifically about discipleship. You know, we don't just have this fancy saying that uh, life change happens best in small groups. There is story after story after story in this church, in life groups that people have suffered together. They have carried one another's burden. There's been hope and healing that has just risen. There's been, I'm, I'm sure there's been some tasting of tears. In life groups here at Desert Breeze. So there's real significance in being part of a small group. There's significance in personal devotional. Your, salve- your, your walk is your walk. You need to be a disciple of God's word and do devotionals and pray. Not only do that personally, but do that in a corporate way. There's significance of corporate worship. We don't just do this because it's a social club and it's fun to come to a cool place with a great coffee bar. God is here. God is bringing people from life to death in this place through the gospel. It's an amazing thing. We are trying to equip saints here. We're trying to provide warrior worship for suffering saints. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a fighting faith. That's what we're trying to equip us with. All of us. Next is we need to pre- you need to preach to your own soul. Martin Lloyd Jones said, "Stop listening to yourself and begin talking to yourself." Much of our battle is against ourselves. We see the um, the psalmist in these psalms. He's listening to himself, but then he's talking to himself. He's fighting. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself the gospel. How do you do that? Well, you got to know Scripture. You got to get in God's Word, right? Psalm 23, let's take that one for instance. The Lord, capital T, capital L. The Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth, the God Almighty, my creator, the Alpha, the Omega, the one and only, the great I Am. Yeah, Him. He's my shepherd. My shepherd, yeah, He's he's big enough to take care of all of us, but He's my personal shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want but I'm a sheep, I do want. I know, that's why he makes you lie down. I shall not want because he's all I need. But he makes me lie down because he knows I'm scared and diseased and I run off. Where does he make me lie down? In his green pastures where I have everything he's got available to me. He makes me lie down pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. Calming, refreshing, soothing waters. That's what it does to my spirit. He restores my soul. That's how you preach to yourself. So preach to your own soul. Next, sing a prayer of life to God. So I wouldn't suggest that you pick Psalm 42 and 43 to sing all day long. Probably won't give you much joy, but there's something about preaching a song, uh, singing a prayer of life to God. There's a lady named uh, Annie Flint, and she wrote this beautiful hymn, and I want to tell you her story. The, uh, the hymn is called, He Giveth More Grace. And Annie Flint, she was born on Christmas Eve, and at the age of three, she lost her mother who died giving birth to her sister. And at that time, her, her father had a terminal illness, and soon after, some years later, he died. And so the, by the age of six, Annie had lost both of her parents. Adopted by family members and raised in the Baptist faith, Baptist faith at the age of eight, she accepted Christ and faithfully ministered to others, excuse me, by her gentle and bold, encouraging demeanor. By her teens, she became to develop, she came to develop rheumatoid arthritis, and during high school, she then lost both of her adoptive parents. Not longer, long after that, she would lose the use of her legs and became wheelchair-bound, and eventually she became bedridden and was covered with sores. Her body became cancerous, and she lost full use of her hands and the control of most of her bodily functions. While she was well enough, Annie wrote many poems and songs, and was said to type them out on a typewriter only using her arthritic knuckles. She died in 1932, and at the age at the age of 66. And although it's obvious that she wrote this song before she died. It was published in 1940 during a time of war and suffering and pain. If anyone could have been excused for writing dark and depressing lyrics, it would have been a woman like Annie Flint. But instead, she focused on Jesus and was inspired. And what inspired the lyrics that she wrote was hope and faith. Listen to these words. Listen to these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He added afflictions. To added afflictions, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arms everlasting unveiling the Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Isn't that amazing? That's a lady who knows how to suffer well. So sing a prayer of life to God. Also, another really hard one, not like they're all not hard, but this is super hard. Above relief from your circumstances, pant for the God of your salvation. Verse two, when shall I come and appear before God? It's an unanswered question in the Psalms. But if you read the rest of the Bible, just like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't get it done. But our king, Jesus Christ, stepped in and he puts us all back together. Depression may be telling you that things are hopeless, but God is not done writing your story He's the God of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, may we bless your name at all times, even in our suffering. May your praises be continually on our mouths and in our hearts. May our souls boast in you, Lord. Help us to remember that when we are humble and remember and hear your name, we will be made glad in our suffering and sadness and depression. Lord, help us to remember that you make those who look to you radiant and that our trust in you will never bring us shame. Help us to believe that today and every day when the righteous cry for help, you, Lord, hear and deliver us with the light of Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, for being near to the brokenhearted and saving us when we are crushed in spirit, and we trust our suffering to you, Lord, believing that many are the afflictions of the righteous, righteous, but the Lord delivers us out of them all. So God, above relief from our circumstances, we pant for you to see your face, the God of our salvation, our God, our Father, our Lord and Savior, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.